This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Michael Mosley, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you. Um, so let me introduce you. For, there might be one or two people in Australia that have not heard of you. Um, an award-winning science presenter, journalist and executive producer, Dr Michael Mosley was born in Calcutta, studied at Oxford and trained to be a doctor at the Royal Free Hospital Medical School in London. In 1985, he joined the BBC where he spent three decades working on shows including The Story of Science, the Emmy-nominated The Human Face and the multi-award-winning science series with Professor Robert Winston. Now freelance, Michael is a well-known television personality and has authored New York Times bestsellers, including The Clever Guts Diet, Fast Exercise... Uh, and The Fast Diet, which popularised the 5.2 diet. His latest book is The Fast 800, which offers flexible ways to help you lose weight, improve mood, reduce blood pressure, and take your health into your own hands, which I guess we all want to do. Absolutely. Okay. So that, to me, is um, it's it's a career that's... Um, that's, I guess, quite varied, that you started off in science and then went to television, yeah. but you have taken the science to television as content with you. Tell me how it all came about. Sure. So once upon a time, I was actually studying politics, philosophy and economics at Oxford. Right. And that's where I kind of started out. And then I went off and became a banker and I discovered I was actually much more interested in the world of ideas and how the human body ticks, which is how I ended up doing medicine instead. So I went there as a kind of slightly older and more mature student. And I thoroughly enjoyed it, but again, I kind of ended up doing a little bit of television and then that turned into a lot of television and then I kind of stayed in television. It's interesting. I mean, people usually go for medicine the other way to the arts. Isn't yes. that interesting? And you've kind of, well, you're in finance. I haven't seen that kind of crossover because, I mean, finance, I guess, people are drawn to that because of the potential big salaries, Indeed. aren't they? So sadly, yes, if I'd stayed, I would have got a, a very, very large salary. But it was an interesting period in time in the UK. It was called Big Bang. Margaret Thatcher had just come in. It was the early 80s. Everything was going, um, ticking off. But I was, I was not that interested in money, um, yeah. you know, and I was certainly well off, but I wanted to do other things. And that's kind of, as I said, I've, I love books. And my life has been obsessed by books. My house is just overflowing with books. And uh, the, for me, books represent ideas. They represent escape. They represent so an introduction to mm. a whole world. So you're not following the, the Marie Kondo model of only keeping 30 books on your book? <laughs> no, no our, our house overflows with them and I try and keep them organised. And I love fiction, I love non-fiction. And uh, one of the things I'm 
thrilled by is the fact that my kids enjoy reading and I'm actually a member of a male book club in my hometown. So there are like 12 of us and we have been meeting now regularly for the last 10 years. So it makes per perfect sense that really a doctor became a writer. Yes, that I mean, was inevitable, I guess. Well, not inevitable because I had actually been a performer a bit. I did stuff when I was at Oxford and when I was at medical school and uh, I went and became a director. So if you're a director and a producer, you have to write. So I started writing scripts, obviously, and then I became a presenter and I wanted to write my own stuff. Uh, but I had never considered actually writing a book. Yeah. And uh, the first book I wrote, uh, which flopped badly, uh, was The Story of Science, and it was very badly marketed. It was a wonderful series we made for BBC Two, and the idea was that uh, it was a six-part series looking at the story of ideas. So, for example, it was a series of questions like, what is out there, which is really the history of astronomy, what is the world made of, which is the history of physics. Big questions. Big, big questions with lots of fabulous, rich incredible characters in it uh, and which shows you the flow of history and the flow of ideas. And I wrote a book on that, took me a long time, uh, sold hardly anything, uh, which was kind of depressing. Uh, but I then went in front of the camera and I found myself doing this um, program called Eat Fast, Live Longer, which was Horizon. And the reason I did that is I discovered I was type 2 diabetic. And I was offered medication, I wanted to find something else. That led me to discover intermittent fasting, which in turn led me to lose 10 kilos, reverse my diabetes. Basically, I've been fine ever since. And to write uh, really the first kind of blockbuster I'd ever written, yep. which was uh, The Fast Up, which I wrote with journalist Mimi Spencer. Okay, I want to get back to that. Mm. I was living in London and working at Dylan's at a time where Stephen Hawking was number one yeah. for a squillion weeks. Um, I often wondered how many people actually read the book. Because <laughs> yeah, I think I read it twice and still don't understand it. Um, science in, is interesting, isn't it? And to bring, I think, that your different backgrounds to actually be um, a doctor, I, I, I find quite interesting because there are so many people who write diet books that don't really know. Yes. Um, I want to talk about diet fads because there are so of many course. of yep. them. Um, and particularly, and they seem to vary from country to country. We've had an obsession probably, as you know, with the paleo diet over yes. the last, which to me sounds ridiculous. Yes. Um, and uh, is it based on, why is it that just people tap into this without any kind of evidence? I think what happens is that they take what sounds like an attractive idea. So, um, for example, in the UK, why did people vote for Brexit? It's an yes. insane idea, but there was a great slogan, taking back control, which sounded like a bloody good thing to do. And to be honest, that's kind of why people did it. And they wanted to thumb their noses up at the establishment. It was a kind of a challenge. It was something different. Uh, normally, people are conservative. In this case, they voted for something which I do regard as, you know, an act of great national self-harm. Um, so you do wonder, as you say, why would people embrace a crazy idea? And because it normally has a kernel of sort of something which sounds sensible at its heart, and it's probably endorsed by some celebrity who you kind of trust. So, for example, a paleo diet, it sort of sounds sensible. You go back to hunter-gatherers, well, they ate loads of meat, didn't they? Why shouldn't we eat lots of meat? The reality is, obviously, if you know anything at all about ancient history, about what people were like, our ancestors did not live on prime steak. Uh, they would have eaten mainly grubs, insects, any old bit of sort of veg lying around, a lot of tubers. If you go and examine the closest thing we have now to what our ancestors would have been like, they were the, the Hedza, who are a hunter-gatherer group um, in Tanzania, and they do not live 
on prime steak. They live on honey. They have a very high-carb diet some of the time and a very low-carb diet some of the time. They eat right. a lot of insects. Uh, yes. They eat a lot of stuff. Now, if I tried to sell you an insect diet, you probably that would be challenging. Yes. Uh, but the idea <laughs> that I can kind of live on prime steak and that's going to be great is you can see the appeal. I think most people give it a go and give up. Uh, I think... I do find it depressing uh, that you can sell books based on no science at all. None. Uh, just something some celebrity has kind of dreamt up on the back of a cornflake packet. So the one thing I would say about, if you're looking at a diet book, is look for scientific references at the back. Has this author provided any evidence whatsoever, apart from their personal opinion, that this thing is going to work? Um, is it based on any clinical trials? Um, I would hope the decent book would have at least 40 or 50 scientific references at the back. Yeah. And genuine science, you know, in genuine journals, not in some unbelievably dodgy naturopath magazine or the Reader's Digest or something like that. Yeah. And I think the problem is that obviously people are not kind of trained to evaluate evidence. But when you're talking about your own health, I mean, you wouldn't go and see a doctor if it wasn't registered. That's what well, I find. A lot of people so, do. <laughs> a lot of well, people, a lot do. people do because yeah. um, they go and see people who just sound plausible. Yeah. And uh, the the reality is, uh, you know, uh, there's people we seek evidence, but also we seek reassurance. And if yeah. somebody's kind of dressed in a white coat and they have a nice manner yeah. and they sort of sound plausible and they've got name doctor and maybe they bought it on the internet from some dodgy American company, oh. uh, but nonetheless, you know. They can sustain it for a period of time, but these things have a tendency to come and go. The only good thing is they generally die the death. Yeah. Bad ideas uh, generally die the death, but they often come back again. Yeah, I mean, you're seeing, um, I mean, we've had a few. Uh, there was a woman called Gibson. I can't remember her first name. I read did, about her, did, yeah. Did you read about her? I did. Saying that she cured her um, brain tumour through therapy. Anyway, um, but yes, and, and she was kind of, you know, widely accepted. <laughs> she made it and up. She all made it up. And yeah. it took a surprising amount. But the great thing is investigative journalists did start getting stuck in and she was eventually exposed. Yeah, absolutely. And um, she then made up a whole load of other stuff. Yeah. But it's very hard to come back from that. That is. It is indeed. But I want to talk about the relationship as well between marketing and food. Um I, you know, in my lifetime, and I've seen so many things that, you know, where at one point people were trying to get us to eat margarine, and I'm talking about Australia here, and I'm not sure yes. if it's the same in the UK, but I think it might be similar, where, you know, people were saying butter was bad for us and margarine was good for us, and, you know, uh, margarine was getting the heart foundation tick and uh, low-fat, you know, yoghurt or low-fat milk, and now what they're saying to us, well, actually, no, you should eat more dairy or you should eat more full-fat. Yes. And, you know, the, the other day I read some kind of report from the World Health, Health Organization about how carbohydrates protect us from heart attacks. And mm. so it's continuous. And then marketing food companies or food companies take that little bit of science or data and then try and sell it to us. Yes. It's a, it's a minefield out there. It is a minefield and um, deeply confusing. I absolutely agree. And unless you're kind of a bit versed in how things are, it's very difficult to make sense of it. So the original advice to go low-fat uh, kind of was based on the data available at the time. It proved to be a very ineffective way of losing weight and things like that. But at the same time, people jumped on the bandwagon and you got all these low-fat yogurts, zero-fat yeah. yogurts, which they stuffed full of sugar. Yeah. So 
the governments did not intend people to consume huge amounts of sugar, but that was an unintended consequence of the advice they were giving, because if you're low-fat, you've got to eat something. Yeah. And as I said, uh, the food manufacturers quickly realised this stuff tasted dreadful, and so uh, the only way of making it more palatable was to stuff it full of cheap sugar, which is unbelievably, you know, addictive, but at the same time unbelievably cheap. So it was a win-win as far as they're concerned. Yeah. But, yeah, I... I, my heart goes out because it is really tough. And all I can say is, you know, the reason I write these books is because I'm trying to uh, challenge some of the alternative facts. And you might well ask, you know, why should they believe me more than anyone else? And I would say, I guess, because I have a good, long track record and all the stuff I write about is actually based on Well, for, and from what I've read as well, you're not telling us in terms of ingredients or food groups or anything else. No. It really is about calorie counting and having a balanced it diet. Is, absolutely, but it is also about a Mediterranean-style diet, so it is about eating the right carbs and the right fats. Yeah. And as I said, Mediterranean-style diet is the best proven, and by that it's something which is rich in nuts, fibres, oily fish, a bit of red wine, maybe a bit of dark chocolate, uh, whole grains and things like that, and yoghurt and, you know, and some a fair amount of dairy. Eggs were never a problem. I don't know why they got demonised. And yeah. you can kind of adapt this cuisine to other people. So my wife, for example, who writes the recipes for my book, she's a GP. Right. Uh, she works in a deprived part of England and um, people don't have a problem with following the advice and we had a big Asian community and she just basically suggested them they cut down or cut out the white rice and the chapatis which really are just sugar in another form yeah, and find uh, alternatives. Yeah, it's quite simple. I want to talk about the vegan diet as mm. well which is um, gaining massive popularity in this country um, and that's all great if you can eat fresh fruit and vegetables the whole time but what I'm seeing people eating is, you know, um, meat... Uh, 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 a process of something, something that's highly yes. processed that looks like meat or something that's highly processed that looks like chicken. And again, I think about that, but isn't the whole point of, of eating is just to have as have the simple basic ingredients and keep them as such? 100%. And if you're – you can eat – vegan well, you can eat it badly. And I fear that an awful lot of people are eating it badly because they've bought someone on Instagram, they've gone out and bought some sort of rice cakes or things like that. Exactly. Which are just, they're just awful. rubbish, awful food. Yeah. And the danger with vegan is that you're going to be deficient in essential nutrients. So you need to be really quite careful. You need to make sure you're getting enough iron, a bit of vitamin B12, some of these things you're going to have to supplement with. Uh, it's not an easy diet. I mean, I absolutely understand from an ethical point of view, from a planetary point of view, I see the argument. I think uh, there's not much evidence it's that much healthier unless you do it well. You can have a healthy Mediterranean diet, you can have a healthy vegan diet, mm -hmm. you can have, and you can have a bad version of all these things. And the problem is that people kind of jump for easy solutions. I completely understand why. Yeah. Uh, but you need to be aware that just because it's vegan doesn't mean it's healthy. Yeah, 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 definitely. I mean, I, I worry about the um, the aisles in the supermarkets where you see an aisle and all this, you know, uh, produced food that's, you know, wheat-free or celiac or whatever. And I think, but what has made it look like that? Yes. There's something else in it, isn't oh, there? Oh, they've stuffed it full of other rubbish. Um, so, yeah. yeah, absolutely, 100%. Uh, I'm a fan of kind of starting from first principles. And that's why the kind of recipes in this book are all kind of starting yep. they're easy to do I mean the idea is that you're not going to be challenging my wife 
Again, she sees a lot of patients. She gives them copies of the book. One of them said to him, uh, to her, I'd rather die than eat this stuff. But she saw him a few years later, and he'd lost 40 kilos. And he decided, he said, look, I decided I didn't want to die after all. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> you two uh, make a good team, you and your wife. No, it's great. And yeah. uh, we talk about changing it all the lives. time, exchange of ideas, yeah, changing, changing lives. lives. She feeds back to me. And as I said, people think this is a middle class thing. Yeah. Uh, but actually it's not. It's the beginning of a kind of revolution which spreads out. And in the UK there are people who are kind of embracing some of the things I write about. And again, working very deprived communities. And it's mm-hmm. not that these people are stupid or anything like that. They simply haven't had the opportunities. And when well, you, access when you to teach money, them, yeah. Access. It's, it's kind of access. It's not even expensive. But you're thinking, no. oh, this is all expensive stuff. But actually it's not because uh, when you actually look at it, if you buy a lot of junk, it's going to be expensive. Uh, things like frozen yeah. vegetables are just as good as fresh vegetables. You can get tinned fish. That's all fine. Uh, Honestly, eating well doesn't have to be expensive. It mm. is expensive if you buy all the added sort of sing-along, uh, super foody, dancey sort of stuff. But the basics, you know, like vegetables, if you buy them, as I said, uh, in their kind of raw state almost, uh, particularly if you buy stuff which is in season, it can be really cheap. Yeah. I want to talk about genetics as well mm. um, because I think that that so plays a large part in in, you know, our general health and well-being. Um, do you agree with that? Do you think... Because, I, you know, you look at three kids in a family, for instance, um, and one could be a bit shorter and rounder and whatever, and the other, the, the other one is taller and thinner. And so already... A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. From when you're born, that's dictated, isn't it? I think that there is a strong genetic component. We know from studies on identical twins that, for example, being overweight or obese is about 50% genetic, 50% environment. What that doesn't explain is why worldwide there's been an explosion of obesity since the 1970s. Our genes have not changed. What absolutely changed was the environment we operated in. It was the fact that we started to eat far more junk food. We followed this really insane advice to eat all the time. The snack food industry absolutely took off feeding this idea that you should kind of, you know, lots of sugary stuff. Um, The problem is there's nothing you can do about your genes. You know, I know that I have a high risk of type 2 diabetes because my father had it. I've had myself tested. There is nothing I can do about that. What I can do is I can change my lifestyle to prevent that happening. Genes are not destiny. And what is probably even more important is your gut bacteria because there are probably a 100 times more genes down there. There are around 100 trillion uh, microbes in your gut. And what we know is you can change them. 
And if you change them, they will in turn influence your mood, your desires, your hunger hormones and things like that. So you can't change your genes. You absolutely can influence your biome. And so I kind of operate on the things you can change. So I do say to people, you know, it's not your fault. You're probably hungrier than other people. You could have two people, one of whom stays effortlessly slim and the other one doesn't. And for you, it's going to be more challenging. But do not use this to say, well, in that case, I might as well give up, but rather say, it's going to be a challenge. Challenges are often a good thing because actually what we need is stress in our lives. We need challenge in our lives. Uh, And uh, we often mistake. We don't need bad stress in our lives, but we need... You know, things we can rise up against. Right. And as I said, uh, I don't for a moment believe that uh, the rise of obesity worldwide was caused by some change in our genes. It was clearly caused by a change in our environment. And this is particularly dramatic in places like China, Vietnam, and the Middle East. Well, they're not eating their natural diet. They're not eating the diet they were eating 40 years ago. And again, if you have Polynesian countries, unbelievably high rates of obesity and of type 2 diabetes. In the Middle East, uh, they've gone from nowhere to 25% type 2 diabetic. They, unfortunately, develop type 2 diabetes at a lower obesity rate, a lower BMI, younger, more aggressively, which is why these chronic conditions, because they have different genetics. So you are protected. Caucasians are largely protected against the impact of obesity. We have no idea why. We just know it is true that if you are looking at risk factors, the major risk factors for, say, developing type 2 diabetes and in turn things like dementia are things like your age, your did one of your family members have it, parents and things like that. Uh, Then it is your ethnic origin. Are you anything other than Caucasian? In which case you are at much greater risk and then you have waist size, you have other things. But those are the big three. So it turns out your genetics strongly predict uh, things like type 2 diabetes. But as I said, uh, this is why it's unbelievably scary because if you're anything other... The explosion has occurred in Australia, in the UK, in the States, mainly amongst initially Caucasians, but now it's just going and crazy in the rest the, of the planet. And is it the more the countries westernise then? Yes. So yeah. clearly what has happened in places like, you can be eating plenty of white rice and, you know, stuff like that if you're doing huge amounts of physical labour. Mm. When you switch basically to lower amounts of physical labour and you're still on the same diet and you're throwing in McDonald's and everything else like that, uh, then you're going to be in serious problems. And that's why in China they've probably got 100 million diabetics now. Uh, they are the beginning of an awful, awful explosion, which has already begun to take off here. And again, why within populations you get huge differences. So if you are of, you know, from Polynesian extraction, then you are again at much greater risk. Yeah, it doesn't help um, that the president of the UA, the United States, um, is on a fast food diet. I don't think that's ro- good role modelling. Oh, it's do you? not. I mean, it's hilarious, <laughs> isn't it? Here I am, uh, the healthiest person ever, based on uh, I think his dictating to his doctor I yeah. don't think he was ever examined uh, I would be astonished if, <laughs> if he wasn't he didn't have type 2 diabetes or at least pre-diabetes but I can't imagine uh, we're ever going to uh, get any evidence of that no but you saw the other day that he brought in I don't oh know, he's insane how many big Macs did he bring in oh yeah. god it just makes you weep doesn't it it was awful yeah, it makes you weep it was and, awful uh, it was such a terrible example to set it was that? awful 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 and it's absolutely uh, you know what you would predict wouldn't it and what you expect you know it's, it astounds me that that his constituents still think that, that there is a valid person in 
there that's actually it, it's it's astounding. It's but what? I guess they might be on diets like that. I think so. And also he's kind of you know he's clearly appealing to their values. And uh, some of their values we can wildly disagree with, but nonetheless, um, you know, they bought into him. And then yeah. if you buy into a guru or you buy into a statesman, you buy, it doesn't in the end matter what they say or what they do because you designed you like them and you interpret everything bad about them as fake news and everything good about them or you hear about them as kind of truth. And, you, and that's what's so weird about human beings. We, we cling on to ideas in the face of overwhelming evidence to the contrary. Absolutely. And that's what makes me weep about some dietitians, I have to say. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of ideas that we have about weight loss, uh, they continue to be propagated despite overwhelming and consistent evidence to the contrary. Mm -hmm. um, I want to talk about... Um, I've been thinking about, obviously, in light of coming in to speak with you, and global warming. Yes. I was listening to a podcast, a science podcast, the other day, and there's a, a fellow um, who's predicted that the human race, um, he thinks, well, you know, we might be in an inhabitable planet. And the time was, you know, as, as soon as 15 years and as far as 75 mm. years. And, you know, that's doom and gloom, right? Oh, yes. But then I thought, then we've got a plethora of other problems and then we're looking at, well, China, for instance, and yes. obesity. I wonder which kills us first. <laughs> yes, great. <laughs> I suspect neither. I think the the, um, the prophets of doom are almost always wrong uh, and making any sort of prediction about the future is completely futile. I think it was probably Hawking or someone like that who said making predictions about the future is uh, particularly difficult. Uh, and he also made a prediction that AI is going to be what gets rid of us in the end. Uh, and he may or may not be right, but uh, I don't think we're going to be around to find out. Um, yes, uh, climate change is a huge issue. I've been making programs about it for now nearly 35 years. I made my first program on it 35 years ago. Yeah. So um, I do think it is a present threat, but I do think it is a century threat. It is not a current threat. Right. Uh, and I do think obesity is not going to wipe us out. It's just going to do horrible, horrible things to old age. Yeah. It's going to have horrible consequences for uh, the economy, for the health service, and that's why I think they may eventually get around to doing something about it. So it's like smoking. Yeah, you know. it's once that something starts to cost. But, um, but again, people made horrible predictions about smoking, all of which turned out to be wrong because actually uh, people did begin to act and smoking rates came down absolutely dramatically. And that was because... They were big scare campaigns, <coughs> weren't they? Big scare campaigns, but it was mainly other things. But scare campaigns almost never work. So just telling someone they're fat never works, telling them they're going to become sick never works. It's the other stuff. So with smoking, it was whacking up the taxes, it was making it really hard to smoke. And in some countries, it was introducing vaping. It was an alternative. I think you Australians are crazy that you don't have vaping because the evidence is overwhelming. I've again made several... I don't know what that is. Vaping is what electronic cigarettes. Oh, yeah, I've seen those So uh, the, in the UK, the Department of Health estimates they are 95% safer than smoking cigarettes. Right. It's the only thing that has had an impact on the hard-to-reach groups. Right. Uh, and in Australia, I believe, basically, you ban it. And I think that is, is that right? bonkers, right. utterly bonkers. Yeah. Uh, that if you allow cigarette smoking, why on earth would you ban one thing which actually seems to be effective at reducing smoking rates and which but is so much safer? Is anyway, it the addiction to the act then? No, it's basically the issue is actually the other ingredients. Nicotine itself is not terribly addictive, right. which is surprising. Right. Uh, I actually uh, took up vaping just to give it a go and I had no desire to continue whatsoever at the end of it. Right. Uh, I'd never smoked before, I will never smoke. No. Uh, but um, it's the other stuff that's in it. It's the actual 
fumes going into, and that's kind of where vaping has an edge. Uh, yeah. It also helps people come off smoking. Right. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm not as apocalyptic about all this stuff because there have been so many predictions about the end of big oil. All of them are wrong because humans are unbelievably good at adapting. But I well, do that's think what I want to talk to you about. Are, are we as intelligent as we think we are? And are Collectively, we? I think we are. I think as individuals, probably not. But what is astonishing about the human race is the ability to collaborate and get together and create something which is bigger and better than the individual. And that has been the secret of our success from the earliest days. We were small, weak, we didn't have knives, we didn't have, you know, we didn't have teeth, we weren't fast, we weren't strong, but we worked together in small groups. Yeah. And that 100% is what made us the most successful animal on the planet. And so, again, in my books, uh, and indeed I've created websites like thefast800.com, you create communities because I think if you're going to lose weight, you're going to do anything, you need to do it in collaboration with other people. And the evidence is overwhelming. The, the more you engage uh, with other people in whatever the venture might be, the more successful you are likely to be. Yeah. So I think that collectively we have achieved astonishing things. And if you're in an optimistic phase, a mind yeah. you can actually look and say we the number of people living in absolute poverty has shrunk astonishingly over the last 40 years. Uh, more people live with clean air. More people are living longer lives. More people, you know, are yeah. living. Uh, yeah, but the bad news, more people are living because we're not yeah. dying of infectious disease. Instead, what we're doing is we're dying of chronic disease. So the optimistic part of me says that at some point people are going to start actually doing something about that and they're going to start saying actually all this junk food it's like smoking yep. we want to do something about it it's not just going to be about telling people it's bad for them because they already know yep. people knew that smoking was bad for them but it didn't make any difference they went on smoking indeed some of the heaviest smokers were nurses who worked in units where they saw people die of lung cancer and it didn't make a bloody jot of difference the fact that they saw it in front of their lives they found mm. it stressful and they responded by smoking more. So just telling people stuff doesn't work. I want to talk about, too, responsibility and corporate responsibility, and I find this particularly with environmental issues like, you know, plastic yeah. packaging and, you know, I, I feel that individuals get it and we understand it and we're always trying to um, to make it better. But you, what I see around me, and it's the same in the food industry, that they are always producing, they, it seem, they seem to be exempt in somehow, like, I, and I don't know what it's like in the UK, but say in Australia, the, the big supermarkets like Woolworths and Coles, they're packaging everything. Yeah. Fruit and vegetables in plastic, for instance. But if you have a look at, say, the Coca-Cola, you have a look at those industries that really are producing foods that are a killer, that continues. Yes. Then, you know, so, and I guess it was They're the same. They're on retreat, I would say, now. Um, so Do it's you like think? Back, oh, 100%. They're now going to go off into other parts of the world where they can um, spread their poison in the same way that the tobacco industry did. Um, they so they get under, people addicted. Oh, they're under serious pressure because that's why they're coming up with all the zero-calorie stuff and things like that because they're aware the tide has turned and there is a massive move away against sugar and sugary drinks and sugary products. Which is why you're actually seeing consumption of sugary products and particularly sugary fizzy drinks going down uh, and that has begun and has been going on actually for some time now so I'm not actually, it's funny I don't, people bang on about sugar, I don't think sugar is necessarily the problem because most of us are not going to bury our faces in a bowl of sugar. I no. don't know if you ever tried eating no. a sugar cube. You just wouldn't do it, would you? No. And in the Fast 800 I kind of have uh, a thing on how, uh, about addiction. Yeah. And the thing is, 
The addictive foods have a quality, and they are basically a ratio of fats to carbs. It's roughly yeah. two to one, two lots of carbs to one of uh, fat. So crisps, for example, chips, uh, pizza, Another chocolate. Another company. They're Another, all, yeah. They're all obey a secret formula. And uh, like you, I think the problem with corporate responsibility is the for corporations, their um, responsibility is to the bottom line. It's to their shareholders. Their responsibility is to make more money. And the challenge for them is how can they be good and do that? And the only way is via legislation. So, for yeah. example, Campbell's Soup, they decided to be good and they reduced the salt content of their soups. People didn't buy them. They basically went, this tastes terrible. I'm not going to buy this stuff. And indeed, they did an experiment where they put two soups side by side. One said reduce sugar, the other one didn't. People bought the other one. So the only way it works is by forcing everyone to reduce the salt content. And that's been a brilliantly successful campaign in yeah. the UK. Certainly. Absolutely. And you make companies do it. We introduced a sugar tax for fizzy drinks. And the great thing about that was that the manufacturers, having said it couldn't be done, all started to do it even before the tax came into place. Because the answer is it could be done, yeah. but the danger was if you did it and your yeah. competitor didn't do it, then you would lose market share. So the only way that yeah. you can actually force change through is by legislating because then the good guys or the good gals, the, yeah. the corporations that want to do good, yep. they can do good yeah. uh, because consumers, unfortunately, will go for the junk mm -hmm. uh, a lot of the time because there's the bit of you which goes, oh, well, I shouldn't eat this because uh, I don't want to be demented in 20 years' time. And there's the other bit of you which is more demanding and more immediate and more chimp-like, which basically goes, well, I taste it, I like it, I'm going to have it now, 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 I want it now. Mm. And those two elements fight in our brains, often the chimp wins. Mm. Michael Mosley, incredibly interesting. Uh, the book is called The Fast 800. Um, it works, it's successful, um, and congratulations on all the success with it. Thank you. Thanks. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.